Hello and welcome to the Theopolis Music Podcast. This is a special offering of the Theopolis Institute uh, regular podcast session. I'm John Ahern. And this week we are joined by uh, Dr. David Erb, who is a fellow of music at New St. Andrews College. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit about the music of, of Michael Pretorius, who was a, a 17th century composer of Lutheran church music. Uh, to start us off, I'd love to ask you, David, a little bit about um, your own background in music, your own background in church music, and a little bit about your distinctive vision for, for church music that you are um, teaching and practicing up at New St. Andrews College. And, and maybe the best way to frame this question is the most striking thing to me when I walk into your office occasionally um, is is you have a portrait of Michael Pretorius right there. It's an, it's not a portrait of Bach, and it's not a portrait of you know whoever else you might have there. But Michael Pretorius, why that choice? And and is that some kind of insight into who you are as a church musician? <laughs> yeah, well, to answer that briefly, I actually do have one of Bach. It just hasn't made it up on the wall yet. Oh, okay. Um, yeah the the uh, the the choice was actually it was a gift. A uh, um, number of years ago, we did a Pretorius um, uh, concerted Christmas work, and one of my students is a talented artist, and uh, so he did the, the painting or the, the chalk uh, drawing of Pretorius. So that's, that's how it came to, to me, um, from doing Pretorius. Um, so yeah, it's my music background. Um, you know, I grew up doing music when I was young, uh, sang in a boy choir, which is very influential on me. Um, and I always knew I wanted to do music, uh, as I grew up, I did three degrees in choral conducting, um, and spent not counting some part-time work here or there when I was younger. Um, oh, I don't know, about 17 years as a church musician, um, in the CREC and Seattle and here in Moscow, um, and then also, of course, the work here at New St. Andrews. Um, and as I, as I transferred away from the conservatory world at other universities and planted more in the church proper, um, of course, I grew, grew in a lot of ways and getting to know things that I didn't know as well. But the, I would say one of the central things for me is just a getting the church to sing. And that's, that's something the CREC was already doing before I came to it. Um, a distinctive of being a singing church because God is a singing God and he calls his people to sing to him, uh, skillfully and with thanksgiving and, and all of that. Um, and there's, there's no, if you had music when you were a kid clause in the scriptures, it just says, sing all ye people over and over again. So that, and then tied to that, um, with, with, ideas like singing skillfully, uh, singing with understanding, um, trying to push out literacy in the music of the church as well, which has quite a long heritage as well, both in Europe um, and early America where there were music theory texts in the beginning of, of the hymnals. Um, so trying to return to that and cast a vision for that uh, through the work in the church and uh, here at NSA, you know, and all of that pointed to appropriate music for worship um, and glorious music for worship um, that's reflective of, of the God that we worship um, and the, the principles he, he lays out in scripture. 
That all sounds like something that I could get on board with myself. Um, so now, now for the question of of why why the Pretorius? I mean, we we now we know that you would also put up Bach if you maybe got around to it or had space. But <laughs> why the Pretorius image up there? Why are we talking about him today? Well, um, next we're we're I guess just slightly premature, but it'll get us ready. Um, uh, one next year is the. 450th birthday of Pretorius, uh, or 400 and 400th anniversary of its death. Um, so it's, it's a Pretorius year coming up. Of course, it's not just because of that, but Pretorius is, is one of the giants in the history of Christian church music. He wrote, uh, so much music, um, and so influential in his day, uh, and then following, of course, but, but, um, Certainly, he needs to be <laughs> more. More needs to be brought up about him because so much has been lost of of his music. Uh, there's people don't know it other than uh, "Lo How a Rose Air Blooming" and a few other little little things. Right. Did. Um, so, really, to to draw attention to this um, musical giant in our heritage. Right. Yeah. It, it, he. He has, I guess, a couple big hits like In Dulce Jubilo. Uh, what do we sing that to? Um, Good Christian Men Rejoice. Yeah, or, or Lo How a Rose. But he, he's a central figure of his time, I think, because he really gives more flesh to the Lutheran musical tradition than it had ever had before. Right. And I, I think... I don't know. You you've just uh, read a, a recent biography of Pretorius, I think. So you would know more than me. But is it fair to say that if you didn't have Pretorius, you wouldn't have had Bach? That there is some central way that he paves the groundwork for what what follows? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, Pretorius is straddling the end of the Renaissance era and early Baroque, um, and he's he's. Uh, working with the new musical currents of that time eventually um, and working them into his music. Um, and similarly, um, Pretorius didn't, he didn't write a whole lot of music just <laughs> of his own accord in the sense that he was working with, as, as you mentioned, uh, German music and other, uh, and Latin music as well, but mainly German uh, Lutheran chorales and arranging it in various ways and writing compositions upon them. So, of course, there is new music that he wrote, but he's working with pre-existing ideas. And in a, in many ways, Bach did that same thing. So, just in the their approach to it, they're working with uh, what's what's been given them and then doing something new with it in their time. Right. Uh, one of the things that I think of that, you know, th there's obviously historical significance to Michael Pretorius. But but I think more than that, there's a kind of present day uh, appropriateness or, or pertinence that he has, his particular musical style has to our current church uh, church music moment, because there's there's something in his style that's very different from even someone like Bach. Mm -hmm. There's a certain uh, rowdiness and a certain abandon in his music. I mean, it's just an earlier moment in the, in the history of the Baroque. It's the very beginning of the Baroque and think there are a lot fewer rules yet that have developed. It's a little less elegant. Yes. Um, 
and, and there's there's a certain musical maximalism. I was just uh, reading a, a couple really wonderful early Lutheran treatises on church music from about this time, maybe the uh, more the late part of the 17th century. Uh, but you know, one of the things that they seem to do, that one of their frustrations with the more Calvinist side of this debate is that that they say, look, it doesn't have to be allegory in the Old Testament when they talk about a whole bunch of instruments. Uh, they talk about instruments upon instruments upon instruments. Why don't we just take that at face value? And you can really hear that in Pretorius's music. Uh, we can play some in, in just a sec, but, but he really just, he loves to pile on all the instruments as if uh, more is always better. And in a way, in a huge cathedral uh, and with a massive congregation, more is better. It, it's a phenomenal effect that he, he manages to pull off. Right. It, he's, he, he wants a, a plethora of color and musical experiences surrounding the sanctuary, surrounding the congregation. Um, it's, it's really early surround sound, right? Um, because right, absolutely. He would, he would place different groups of instruments or singers in different places in the church. And it is, it is a, the development of polychoral music, which, which he learns from Italy, although he never got there, learned it from Dresden and other places, um, is, well, surely, I mean, it could happen, but probably doesn't develop if you don't have the architecture of the cathedrals. <laughs> Yeah. Um, in which the musicians are living and working, um, the, they're they're formed by their architecture, and so they're using and uh, making use of the glory of that with the musical compositions they're they're doing. That's that's right, and and I think that there's some significance too. Another aspect of Pretorius, which is again that kind of earlier rowdier style of Lutheran music that is going to disappear later. Uh, one of the strange things about his music is that he has both Latin and German. Yeah. I mean, this is, a, of course, a common misconception that that with the Lutheran Reformation, with with just the Reformation in general, uh, the reformers were going to they're going to throw out all the Roman Catholic liturgy and just start from scratch. And of course, that's not at all what happens. Um, Luther originally is trying to advocate for for keeping the Latin mass. Um, he's a little suspicious of of going too far in the German direction, but but it, for you know a good 150 years in the Lutheran tradition, I don't know too much about the liturgical history, but at least in a lot of these musical settings, you still see Latin and you still see German. And the way this relates to what you were just saying about architecture is that, uh, and I was reading Mike, uh, Paul McCreish talk about this in the liner notes of his wonderful uh, Pretorius album that we're going to listen to. He was talking about how. The, a lot of times the the beautiful professional ensemble that's going to sing a lot of the music is behind the congregation up in some balcony with the organ and they're singing in Latin. And then a moment later, you as the congregation surrounded by a whole bunch of other musicians are going to sing in German. And you get this pretty incredible uh, symbolic representation of music in heaven coming from behind you where you can't see going on in Latin, singing music that, that is related to the ancient Gregorian chant. And then you uh, seeing a German translated version of that yourself with your, your friends in the congregation. That's, uh, to me, that's just an incredible symbolic representation of the Christian theology of worship and that, we are, that we're joining with heaven in this moment where we're worshiping together. 
and it's this great effect. I can't see where the music's coming from. It's behind me. It's up in the rafters somewhere. And it's these ancient Latin chants. And here we are now singing the same thing in German. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. And one other uh, <laughs> type of music like that is, so sometimes they just did German. Sometimes they just did Latin. Sometimes they alternated with both, as you just talked about. And then they had a, another kind of text song um, where they had both, um, which is referred to as macaronic. So, you know, in, you mentioned in Dulce Ubilo. So that starts out in Latin, in Dulce Ubilo, nun singet unseit froh. And then the next clause is in German, so it alternates. Yeah. It's a bilingual song in essence. Um, and that and that was a, a folk song, a folk carol. Um, so one that would have been sung by the congregation in both languages. But the only, you know, the only, probably the only, real uh, version of that that we have would be Angels We Have Heard on High, where we sing the Gloria in Excelsis. Yeah, that's kind of a, a faint shadow of yeah. the Gloria. <laughs> right. And, and it, that's a, a wonderful microcosm of a very Lutheran principle that I admire a lot. Um, we're kind of really praising the Lutherans right now. And I'm not actually Lutheran in case anybody was wondering, <laughs> but uh, you know, one of the really wonderful things about, I think the Lutheran vision of church music is, is really that they're trying to resist a kind of lowest common denominator approach. I, I mean, of course, Luther believes in the priesthood of all believers. He believes in, a vernacular approach to uh, to religion. He believes in a vernacular approach to liturgy, but at the same time, his vision is not that we should throw out all the glorious, excellent, but nonetheless papist Latin stuff. Right. Uh, his his vision very much is well. Let's get the you know the German peasants. Let's get them a little bit more Latin. Let's see if we can help them to you know pedagogically and heuristically understand what's going on in the Latin liturgy and, and bring them as participants into, into that, that, um, you know, beautiful heraldic liturgy. Yeah. He, <laughs> um, Pretorius, uh, like many others did, um, you know, surely they, they had respect uh, for their Calvinist brothers, but um, musically speaking, he, uh, in one of his, uh, it was in the Syntagma Musicum, I think, one of the volumes. He kind of takes a shot um, without naming, but he says certain sullen Scythians, and generally it's concluded that he's talking about Calvinists, um, but he's he's blasting them for their uh, monophonic church music and their stances against pleasurable emotion, particularly as it <laughs> interacts with music, whether that's in the church or outside of the church, Um so there's certainly a contrast uh, there to be sure. Yeah, a, a little regrettable, but, but oh well. So yeah. we should probably listen to an example of what I'm talking about. I, I wanted to listen to um, a few tracks, and I know you did as well, from the Paul McCreish album, uh, Mass for Christmas Morning. I, I remember first hearing about this album uh, actually from from – Duck Schuler, an article that he wrote in Credenda Agenda, um, and uh, that I mean that that was a long, long time ago. I must have been maybe ten or eleven years old or something. But uh, I I can't tell you how many both Christian and non-Christian people I've run into 
who cite this album as a transformative experience for them. Uh, you know, they, they listen to this album and they just, they say, I had no idea music could be like that. It's, it's just an incredible album. And um, this is the third to last track. So this is just a track of a congregation singing uh, a hymn and they're going to do what, what we just described. Some professional musicians are going to sing the hymn, one verse in Latin, and then the congregation is going to sing the same verse in German. And what, what's actually kind of cool about this recording, not only are they doing this in a, in a cathedral, like we described, but they are actually getting a congregation uh, of not particularly uh, well-trained singers to sing during the German verses. And occasionally in this recording, you can hear some people who are a little bit pitchy. Uh, that's one of the, my favorite things about this recording. There, you know, a couple of people can't quite carry the, carry the tune as well as others. But um, so you can hear what we're talking about. And I just love how fast it is, how maximalist it is. I don't need to keep talking. We'll just play a little bit of it. Yeah, well, uh, you had, you had uh, mentioned someone saying to you they they didn't know there was such church music or <laughs> church music could sound like that. Um, there's a a quote of of someone in Pretorius's day that was at a princely gathering and there were worship services held and uh, as a part of it. Um, and this gentleman reports uh, quote. Pretorius could be heard with all kinds of instruments, kettle drums and trumpets. I have not heard or experienced anything like it before or since. Uh, and then he mentioned some music particularly that was sung uh, with all kinds of musical instruments in such a way that a person's heart could have literally leaped for joy. I think there were many people there who had not heard such music in their lifetime. <laughs> so that's even back to right. writing it. Um, yeah, there is, you know, there's... There's the strength, one of the strengths in it, which I, I like, um, is when the congregation is singing, they're all singing the melody, and there's yeah. a power, there's, of course, harmonies happening around them, uh, perhaps by the choir or, or more so by the instruments, but there's a strength when everyone sings that melody, because it's in the middle of everybody's voice, whereas uh, very often when <laughs> congregations go off into the low bass parts and low alto parts. Um, it's fun to sing individually, but it doesn't lift the song up 
with great power and unity that way. But there is a, despite that, there's a, a strength and a power and kind of a, as you were saying, a raucousness almost uh, about the approach to the music, a little less refined. Um, and it's, Obviously, there's approach to singing. One has to give <laughs> an energy level and know the music well enough to sing it out heartily. Um, but there's also, of course, a beauty. Um, it's not just a joyful noise that's loud, but <laughs> who really wants to listen to it? Um, it's, it is surrounded still by a beauty, and that's the skill of the arranger or the composer, uh, Pretorius in this case. Um, so bringing those two things together. Um, and the... You know, this notion of the choir and the, uh, the alternatum practice of the choir and the, the congregation and the instruments, um, there's such a, well, it's a biblical picture of singing to one another, as we read in Colossians, or uh, when the, the walls were rededicated in Jerusalem, you had these large Thanksgiving choirs on both, uh, on the two, the two walls, <clears throat> or when they called back the blessings and curses from one mountaintop to another, you get a picture of that and you don't, you almost never get that uh, experience um, in our church worship service because it's only the choir or only the congregation. And in many places there's no choir and it's only the congregation. Um, and I think in so being it's, it's a picture of heaven and where you, you see, you see, Everybody's singing, but not always at the same time. Um, right. You see different choirs, the choir of the 24 elders and the cherubim and seraphim and, you know, the big host that's without number. There's different choirs described. Um, and I, I think Lutherans, <laughs> generally speaking, historically speaking, got that and it's borne out uh, often in their music, but probably nowhere more than with Praetorius or others like him, um, but he would be at the head of the, the class. Um, because as music goes forward, as you said, it, it gets more refined and there's a glory in that. But one of the things that, that frequently is lost is that alternation um, in, the same, <laughs> in the same piece of music. Um, and not that, not that that's always necessary, but... Um, I think if it were, you'd have this wonderful dynamic. Uh, it, you know, the, the hardship in it, of course, is the practical, how do you get there? Not just in uh, arranging the music, but training, training your people how that works. <laughs> right. I was going to ask you that. Um, maybe another, I mean, something that always occurs to me is, how do you, how do you pay for this? I mean, maybe Pretorius, I don't know exactly what church he was working at when he wrote a lot of this music, but clearly he was at a comfortable church. He had some kind of church budget that was bigger than anyone I've ever experienced. Yeah. But I mean, how, how do you pay for this many musicians? Yeah, well, obviously, <laughs> some of this is a uh, different time. Um, you're, you're back where uh, the the churches or the, the princes had a lot of money in, at least in the bigger cities, um, big for that time. And they invested a lot of money in music because it was valued. And it was, a you know, sometimes it was valued for nothing else than um, pride and showing off <laughs> all that they had. But um, you know, Pretorius worked most of his life uh, for uh, Duke Heinrich uh, Julius, um, so he was, he was at a court, which there was church music that went with it, but he wasn't just a, 
at a church um, by itself. But, you know, I think this is, so he obviously had resources, but they weren't as big as other places. You know, later in his life when he's writing the the huge uh, polyhymnia works, he he was kind of like a free agent consultant, and he ended up doing a lot more work in Dresden where Schutz was. Um, and so he starts writing stuff with the forces that Schutz has in mind, and, and Schutz pieces um, are often seen as better than Pretorius's, and it's one of the reasons actually Pretorius doesn't get done as much. But Schutz was at a place where he had way more resources, and he wrote for them, and Pretorius didn't. So there's there's more accessibility, but he still had his paid musicians, and you know, just in towns there, you had people that were paid to play music in the town square, the, the, the brass players and the wind players, the outdoor music players. And so they're just part of the community, part of the church. And so they would often play. Um, if you had a university, you, you had a collegium musicum, you had resources. And then of course they just trained their boys up to lead in this way in the church music schools or the church schools. Um, but one of the things Pretorius was mindful of was that there were many other smaller towns and villages that would not be able to manage the music he was writing. And so he wrote various versions of most of his pieces where maybe he started out and it was for eight or nine different parts, but then he wrote uh, a version for five voices or maybe one, just two or three voices um, so they could do the same kind of music, but at a smaller scale. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't just the hymn by itself without any kind of, uh, artistry about it. Um, and then the other part of it too, and this is, uh, um, it's, it really is the glory of Pretorius, but we're not as, as trained musicians, we don't think like this. <laughs> we're, we're trained to do the work as it is on the page. And for Pretorius, you don't have to do the work as it is on the page. He, and he writes about this over and over again in his compositions and in his uh, encyclopedic treatment and syntagma musicum um, to take various settings. And so not just do uh, the one before you, but do a smaller version, do a congregational version, do a bigger version if you have the means. But then you can arrange it for whatever instrument you have or don't have. So, you know, if you had a keyboard player who's skilled enough to understand to read a score, he could cover three or four of the parts or more, or you could just leave out some of the parts if you didn't have enough instruments. As long as you were covering the primary melodic material by one or two voices, and then had some other harmony instruments around it. If you have more, great, pile it on or or alternate it. So he gives so much flexibility, even, even if you don't take one of his two or three voice arrangements, you take one of his eight or nine voices, and you can do it with a really small group of performers. I'm going to uh, quote, we've talked about this before, but um, he, he talks about this in his uh, Syntagma Musica, the third volume, where he's talking about different styles of music and ways of performing. And he's, he's talking, uh, he comes to this part about lute choirs. And uh, the piece he's going to mention is not one of his own. It's actually an older piece. Um, but I'll, let me just read it and then I'll <laughs> unpack it just a little bit. Um, so, lute choir. 
I call groupings of such instruments as harpsichords or spinets, plucked instruments, commonly called instrument, theorobos, lutes, pandoras, opharions, citerns, a large bass lyra, or whatever chord-playing instruments one may be able to assemble, a lute choir. It is also suitable to add a bass viol to the chord-playing instrument. This type of choir mentioned above uh, is called an English consort. It produces quite a beautiful effect and lovely sound or resonance uh, because of the plucking of so many strings. I once arranged to have the incredibly beautiful motet Egresus Jesus for seven voices by Jacques de Wert, an outstanding composer, uh, performed by two theorobos, three lutes, two citerns, four harpsichords and spinets, seven viola de gambas, two transverse flutes, two boys, one alto, and a bass, a string bass, uh, without organ or regal. This grouping produced an absolutely magnificent sound so that practically everything in the church fairly crackled as a result of the sound of the many strings. So if you look at the score of this music, um, what you'll see is a seven-part motet, every, every part um, for a voice and with words on it. And so the typical, you know, church choir or a college choir approach to that would be to have seven singers or seven parts in a choir sing it as an a cappella motet because we, we kind of have this sense that in the Renaissance, you sang a cappella. That's, that's how you did it. And here, Pretorius says, I had a multitude of harpsichords and spinets and lutes and guitar-like instruments and just three singers. That would so scandalize uh, so many people in the performance practice movement of like, you know, to perform a de Vere motet with that ensemble. That's just crazy. Right. And, and I've, never, I've never heard a performance like that, although I may try something similar uh, <laughs> at a concert in the spring. Um, but it's this, it's this freedom as a musician to realize, and, and he's doing it here with a piece that's not his, so that this was his approach to music, uh, generally speaking, and probably uh, similar to many others. It just doesn't get uh, <laughs> written on a whole lot. Um, but... There, yeah, there's this freedom, but that's scary to a lot of people. Like, well, how could I do it? Would that be right? Or, um, you know, when I was when I was doing my master's at Westminster Choir College in Princeton, uh, where you're you're at, um, not at Westminster, but in Princeton, um, I took a, a class on Bach cantatas with Robin Lever, and um, each week a different group of students would have to prepare a cantata, and we'd perform it and talk about it. Um, but I remember him saying uh, at that time, you know, if, if you're at some church and you want to do uh, a cantata or a movement from a cantata and it calls for obligato oboe and you don't have an oboe player, but you've got a skilled, a skilled clarinet player, <laughs> well, then sub the instrument in or play it on violin or just play it on the keyboard instrument. Um, yeah, it's great. It's great when you get to realize Bach and he was more particular in this in the way he composed it than than yeah. in that sense. But but do Bach do Bach and arrange it with what you have, you know, not to be silly or, or whimsical about it, but that's better to do that than to not do it at all because you don't have two oboe players and five part strings or you don't have the trumpet consort. You know, some things you can't do 
Um, it's, it's harder to be quite as free with Bach as it is with Pretorius. But nevertheless, that approach to music is so different from the status quo or the norm at this point in history. Right. And I, and it's, it is such a, uh, a false binary between, say, the, the tight-laced traditional approach to church music, which is sort of going to have um, every note in its place, no modularity of any kind, and on the other side, maybe a kind of big box contemporary Christian approach where, uh, in a way, I mean, I think it presents itself as being everything is up for grabs, but in a way, actually, contemporary Christian music is also very interested in getting you the sound just like the recording that's on the radio uh, or, you know, wherever you listen to, to contemporary Christian music. Right. But I think that Pretorius represents some kind of uh, third option, which doesn't really exist anymore. It's it's deeply modular. It, you can um, re- remove elements, add elements as is necessary for whatever resources are at your disposal, and you still get get some kind of uh, core to the music. And I think that that a key aspect of that is polyphony. I think that that we're still at a moment in the history of music where the operative model of music is somewhere in, at the core of the of this music is a cantus firmus. It's a hymn tune, a chorale mm-hmm. um, melody, which is the sine qua non. You can't do without it. That's got to be there. And you can layer on all these different elements. And, and as you're able to, you can add more, you know, glory to the music. You can multiply how much uh, awesomeness is there in the music. But you know, when you have that polyphonic approach, you're able to have a certain modularity depending upon what your what your individual resources are. Yes, and the flexibility, though, I think, comes from this transition from the strictly polyphonic approach to uh, moving to this more homophonic vertical approach, where where the the figured bass continuo um, underpinning to it all. There's there's this vertical harmonic. Um, element of course and it allows things to be subtracted in a way not just played on different instruments but in in many cases subtracted and you don't lose uh you don't lose something core other than you you know you have to leave the the chorale melody and as you were saying which has that canis firmus elements to it but you know if you if you think back to motet by victoria or palestrina and you just took out one of the lines the piece would suffer (laughs) um Right. It doesn't with Pretorius, and that's that's that bridge that moving into the Baroque uh, vertical aspect with polyphony. Yes, right. Um, going back to what you were saying about uh, Pretorius inviting town musicians to to be a part of it, that reminds me of of the final track of this album, uh, Mass for Christmas Morning. Maybe we can listen to a little bit of that. Uh, we mentioned that that to this day. If we remember anything about Pretorius, it's probably either Loha Rose are blooming or Good Christian Men Rejoice. Well, the final track of this album is um, In Dulce Jubilo, which becomes a Good Christian Men Rejoice in modern carol. Um, and it's it's Pretorius's kind of uh, let's blow the doors off of the building kind of final piece. And and there is there is such uh, I would say dramaturgical energy to this piece because it's it's the last part of this very long Lutheran mass. 
you can imagine how many people on Christmas morning are just excited to get out of the building and go open presents or whatever. I guess you wouldn't have necessarily done that, but go home and have your, your roast. Uh, it's, it's full of, I would say, some kind of centrifugal energy to just get out the door. And at the very end of this, uh, at, of this motet, that is the final aspect of the liturgy here, uh, Pretorius says that what he often does is he opens up the doors of the cathedral and there, right outside on the cathedral steps, is a group of town trumpeters who maybe aren't extremely good, uh, but they can play loud and they can play their simple fanfare. And they're, you know, standing in the snow and they've got drums and they just play as loud as they can straight into the cathedral. And I, I mean, just the, that description makes me uh, so excited just on its own. But the sound of it is, is utterly phenomenal. And, and they process into the cathedral and then, and then they play for the last round of the, of the piece. So I'll play that a little bit and we can hear what that sounds like. And one of the things I love about that the most is that uh, that trombone or whatever instrument it is that's down there at the very bottom. And he's just he's found the lowest note he can play and he's playing it as loud as he possibly can. And it just it's it's phenomenal. Yeah, you can almost uh, envision his lips coming out the end of the bell <laughs> as a brass player. Yeah, it's. It's visceral, and it's it's visceral in a way that it's, it's not just because it's loud, but it's because it's it's hearty singing. That's good singing, of course. This is a good choir, but even congregationally, there's a there's an all in singing which gives it its force. It, but the other stuff helps, and it's the um, of course that's that is the divide between a Lutheran and a Calvinistic. <laughs> one of the divides um, dealing with music is. Those are part of the gifts and and the description in Scripture about uh, about worshiping God. You know, when you when you look at more more times than not, when it talks about singing unto the Lord, there are instruments as a part of that. You know, from the time David establishes uh, worship and, and beyond, but um, it's singing and instruments. Psalm Psalm eighty seven concludes both the singers and players on instruments say. All my springs are in you. So the instruments say that as well as the voices. So if the if the singer sings, 
in dulci ubilo, and then you hear an echo in a violin, ba da da di da 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 da. You can hear them saying that, even though the words aren't being said at that time, but they do it together as a body, lifting that up, and they lift it up in strength and glory and beauty. And when you take out that element, you lose so much of that. Right. Um, one other thing that I wanted to bring up uh, before we're, we're finished is going back to that question of, okay, I'm a church musician. Um, how exactly am I supposed to pull this off? Uh, you know, even if we, if we grant, I'm not going to do exactly what Pretorius did. Uh, maybe I do some folksy Southern harmony hymns in my church, or maybe I do some more traditional hymns in my church. Uh, you know, how do I get across that kind of musical maximalism where you've just got tons and tons of instruments and that sort of thing? Um, one of the, I, I think that that's, that's got to be a universal problem that, that many, many congregations and church musicians have struggled with across all of history of all of the history of church music. And I think that's an important reason why the Lutherans really like pipe organs is because pipe organs can uh, get you a lot of uh, crackle. They can get you a lot of oomph. They can really actually support the sound of 300, 500, 700 people singing at the top of their lungs um, and not be drowned out by that. And pipe organs can get you the wide range of instrumental sounds. And you only have to pay one guy. Uh, you have to buy a harps, uh, buy a pipe organ, which is kind of expensive. But it's a it's an upfront cost. You have to pay one guy, and you get a lot of bang for your buck. And I think that uh, that's that's one of the reasons why it's it's a profoundly important uh, feature of Lutheran church music at this period. Yeah, obviously historically, it's known as the king of the instruments. <laughs> Pretorius was you know, Pretorius himself, of course, was an organist, and that's his first work in the church was as an organist and he was helped up with building projects on, on organs and, and whatnot. But yeah, he just gushed. I'm, I'm going to read a quote since you brought it up. Um, he writes on the dignity and excellence of organs and how those designed only and especially for service to the church and for worship are to be preferred to all other instruments. Um, so this is what he says about it. Um, Indeed, the lovely polyphonic mechanism contains just about everything that can be devised and invented in music, and it produces such a genuine natural sound, tone, and timbre, not unlike an entire choir of full of musicians where a number of different melodies are heard from the voices of both boys and men. In summary, the organ alone contains and encompasses all other musical instruments, large and small, whatever names they might have. If you wish to hear a tympanum, trumpet, sackbut, cornet, recorder, flutes, bombard, shams, dulcians, rackets, sordons, crumhorns, viols, violins, lyras, etc., you can have all of these and many other whimsical delights besides in this ingenious mechanism. Thus, when you have and hear this instrument, you cannot help but imagine that you have and are hearing all the other instruments at once. Not to mention that on the organ, a person with only basic experience in the art can often outdo outstanding masters on other instruments, since proper control of this mechanism's muzzle requires the simultaneous use of hands and feet. 
and it is not an exaggeration to say that no art has advanced as far as the art of the organ, for mankind's clever ingenuity and diligent reflection have brought it to the point that it can continue to exist just fine in its current state without any further additions whatsoever, and one gets the impression that its perfection and completeness leave nothing to be desired and cannot be increased or augmented in any way. <laughs> so, well, there you go. But, yeah, it's, you know, it is a, it's always a challenge if you're in a, a small church. We're at a time now that doesn't value um, hiring a church musician, um, a, a vocationally well-trained church musician to start with. Um, I, I think at, at some point that's, that's key. Um, of course, churches, uh, as they should, uh, seek as soon as they can to hire a pastor and that's what he does. Sometimes he has to work a side job until the church grows, but you want you want someone there. But historically, then you've had a Chenaniah, the, the musical leader who, who was the leader because he was skillful uh, and knowledgeable, both theologically and musically. And um, I probably shouldn't say this, and I don't mean any offense by it, but if our churches are forever led by either 16-year-old or 60-year-old people um, who have not studied music in a vocational manner at all, um, there's, there's nowhere to go. Um, you know, bless people that are filling in when that's all that can be done, to be sure. But, but the people need a vision. The church needs a vision. It's, it's a biblical. It's, a, it's already been laid out for us. But we need to return to that vision of having people like Chenaniah, like Pretorius, or lesser versions of them um, leading and working out what they've been trained to do with whatever resources they have. Um, and so you need, you need leadership or it's hard, hard to, to get there. Um, you know, if, if all you've got is a piano, great. That's all you've got at the moment, but how can you augment that? Maybe by just adding a recorder <laughs> or one violin adds a glory to a piece that your youth choir is doing that, just by itself doesn't have the same effect. Um, and, uh, you know, I think with that, as I mentioned earlier on, the long-term game of training up children to be musically literate is so important. It doesn't solve the problem for the church musician right this minute, and he may not live to see the fruit. But if you train up wherever you are, all those kids to be able to read music like they read English – some of them are going to go on to be professional musicians. Some of them are just going to be, most of them will be amateurs, just like very few people who, who go to school for 12 years and learn to read and write and write essays and poems. Most of them don't earn their living as a writer, right? but they can all do it at a relatively high level. So what if our congregations were filled with those kind of people? And the most recent model of this is is Hungary when could I got that musical education uh, plan put into their school systems. And within one generation, their whole country basically became musically literate. And you have this huge rise in, in choirs and orchestras in, in all sorts of towns. And it got to the point where if you couldn't play and sing and read music, um, you weren't really considered a literate person. That was just part of being a trained person person who went through the school system. I think it's fallen off uh, more recently, but 
So it, it can be done. Of course, Hungary is smaller than the United States, but you, you, you start to try to do that where you are, your people, um, and, and you just keep laboring at it. But you need, the, you need the singing master. You need someone to start that. And if you don't have someone, then do the best you can. But I think encouragement to, to pastors and elders particularly would be the goal has to be how can we find someone who's more trained to do this? Otherwise, you can't you can't go any further, right? And there's no that's not an easy answer to the to the issue. But at any rate, you mentioned the the biography I read. Um, <laughs> I I'd, I'd commend to people um, who are interested. Um, it's a book called Heaven Is My Fatherland: The Life and Work of Michael Pretorius. It's translated and edited by Nathaniel Biebert, who's a Lutheran pastor. Uh, he's from my home state of Wisconsin. He's now down in uh, Austin, Texas. Um, it's a uh, it's translated and edited. Uh, that is to say, there's a probably the best biography that existed was in German um, by Siegfried Vogelsanger, um, and so he translated it. But he also updated some stuff um, and made uh, some additions. It's mainly Vogelsanger's work, um, but it's a it's a it's really the only place to get more than kind of a dictionary entry. Um, and it goes into to depth on certain musical things that for some may not be of interest, but um, what, what I find interesting is when you do get, and you, you often don't see this in most musical treatises where it, it deals with, with a little bit more of Luther's or uh, Pretorius's um, Lutheran heritage and his, his work as a Christian composer rather than just a famous composer um, who happened to write Christian music. Um, uh, Biebert, Biebert says in his preface, for those who take Christianity seriously, as Pretorius certainly did, their religious impulses are always the strongest and most determinative ones. If you want to understand Pretorius, you ultimately have to understand his confessional Lutheran faith and the religious context in which he lived. And, you know, from little bit of his heritage. His dad was a pastor who uh, was a, a colleague of Johann Walter, who was the first <laughs> Lutheran cantor, uh, Luther's music guy. Uh, his dad also knew and, and studied a bit with Luther. Um, and his dad was was a, an Orthodox Lutheran pastor. They were known as Nacio uh, Lutherans, as opposed to the Philippists, um, where there was this big <laughs> war where you know, depending on who was ruling your town, uh, if, if you held to one or the other, you weren't allowed. So Pretorius's dad had to move around from town to town often because uh, the the prince didn't like it was was more liberal, if you will. Um, but it highlights various um, things that Pretorius wrote in his in the uh, title pages and other places in his publications holy vows to the Lord um, and and just his uh, theological rationale for church music, which tie into what you'd read all the way back to Luther. But one one that I, I'd point out is uh, Pretorius. So his dad's name was Schulteis, and then Pretor, uh, Pretorius Latinized his name to Pretorius. Um, but he would also add to his name where he was born, which was in Kreuzberg. So he would always sign his name, Michael Praetorius Kreuzbergensis, and he'd just write his initials off in MPC, um, which then he 
he took those initials and had this saying, which was his his motto, uh, Mihi Patria Celum, Heaven is My Fatherland, the title of, of the book. Um, and he also, with that, had a creed. <laughs> I, most of us don't do this anymore, but musicians did, of course, back then. Um, he had this creed that eventually ended up... Uh, being this, uh, enraptured by love for the sacred lute, O God, I overcome difficulties. I do not desire worldly things, enraptured by love for you. There is no salvation with the world. Heaven is my sweet fatherland. That which you deny me, O world, Jehovah shall give me. And the, the first three words in the, it was written in Latin, um, raptus amore celi, uh, for love of the, the lute, um, is an anagram of Michael Pretorius. <laughs> um, and so you just, and so, in so many other places, just his writing about why he does it um, to obviously for the glory of God. But I think that, that seeing of heaven as my fatherland and for, for, <laughs> for Christians who, who read in this area and work in this area, you know, the book of revelation is a, <laughs> is a place we come back to because we, we see, we see this grand glorious worship taking place before the throne of God. And as we pray on earth, as it is in heaven um, and Pretorius having that basically as being his creed, heaven is my fatherland. There's, there's the longing to get there. Um, and then there's also this desire to try to, bring that about on earth as much as is humanly possible by what we're afforded uh, by scriptural uh, teaching to us as we see in heaven, as, as Isaiah and John got glimpses into heavenly worship. Um, so you see that and there's, there's other uh, writings that I, I won't read now, um, but that's a, a pitch for that book um, for those who are, who are interested to go deeper. Um, and one other story, if you don't mind me, uh, sharing it, um, maybe two, I'll end with the other, but is a piece, uh, I've never done, um, never heard done, but it's Pretorius's swan song. So in the year 1616, um, uh, a nobleman by the name of Grossman had a, uh, serious event that almost killed him, but he was delivered, uh, ended up living. And so to give thanks to God, he commissioned 16 famous composers uh, in his day to make a musical setting of Psalm 116, which talks about being delivered. Um, and just this last summer, I did another one of these works uh, by Schutz uh, from this compilation Angst der Helle und Friede der Seele, which are quotes from the psalm. Um, but this, when this gets commissioned, um, Pretorius is near the end of his life, as it turns out. Um, and the um, Grossmann, in his publication, makes special note of, of a letter that Pretorius sent to him because Pretorius basically <laughs> sensed that he was near his end. He, he had various health issues, um, but, but it was true that he was near the end of his life. So let me read um, what Pretorius writes here. Um, well, gr through Grossman's quotation. Um, 
Um, yeah. So the late author, so when this gets published, Pretorius is already dead um, a couple of years. The late author of the following piece, Mr. Pretorius, in transmitting this psalm, also composed an excellent ordinance and several variations indicating how he wants it performed. He also wrote a most moving and spiritually enriching letter to me in which he states that he composed the psalm not only in friendly compliance with my Christian request, but also to bid farewell to himself, and with it he intended to take his leave. Shortly after that, he died a blessed death and was transferred to the heavenly ensemble. Um, so I, I'm motivated to maybe want to do uh, his version of it also. But um, just it's a, a neat story that the, the collection of, of various uh, settings of Psalm 116 is available on recording also. It's an interesting compilation of famous musicians. Uh, those last two anecdotes that you just uh, that you just had about him, he really seems to be very keen on this idea of uh, the the music of the earth should uh, assimilate itself to the music in heaven. Uh, that and that's something that is really uh, key to Pretorius a, as a whole. There's a wonderful woodcut on the original print of Syntagma Musicum. I should mention, I, we sort of glossed over this a little bit, but Pretorius is also hugely influential in the history of music because he is one of the first really great music historians and musicologists. Right. Uh, I mean, he wrote, he wrote three of these massive tomes, one in Latin and two in German, all about the theology of music, history of music, uh, the current uh, current kind of um, ethnography of music during his time, and, and explorations of instruments and that sort of thing. I, on on one of the prints of this in in the original print of Syntagma Musicum, there's a wonderful woodcut which shows uh, uh, sort of the first the, the top of the woodcut is an image of heaven you've got sort of the typical thing that you see in heaven in iconography of the time you've got the different choruses of angels mm -hmm. uh very much like revelation four and five and he even says in the woodcut revelation four and five uh to make sure that we are clear that we're talking about that you know the the different choirs of the elders and the beasts and the angels and so forth and then uh, the bottom half is a picture of a typical 17th century uh, Lutheran cathedral, and you've got, like like we were talking about earlier, a polychorality. You've got a choir over here in a balcony, in another balcony across, you've got a choir, you've got an organ down here, you've got another ensemble tucked in over in this back corner. Um, and he's very clearly making the argument, look, if you want to, uh, to do worship on earth as it is in heaven, if you want to follow the Hebrews 12 model of it, if you want your worship to be like Revelation 4 and 5, I can show you how. You, you just got to adopt our polyphonic, polychoral approach to music. Um, you can, you know, buy my music here. I mean, I'm sure he's not making that kind of a blunt <laughs> for his own music. But uh, and I think that that's a really wonderful, it seems that he, he took that vision very, very personally as well from the anecdotes you were giving. But I think that that's a wonderful way of thinking about church music. It goes, for what it's worth, this is an old idea. It goes at least all the way back to Johannes Tinctoris in the 15th century, who, um, you know, is one of my favorite people, I am studying him in part as part of my PhD, but you know, he has a wonderful line in his works about how the music on earth should imitate music in heaven. 
Um, and in fact, uh, he cites Augustine as the guy who originally first talks about this in the city of God, that the city of God is a harmonious place. Um, and so, you know, the earthly church should be harmonious in that same way. And for Tinctoris, uh, this is this is clear indication that whatever we do with our music here on earth, we should be attempting to imitate the church. Uh, in the church militant, we should be attempting to imitate the, the church triumphant. Yeah. Amen. One last uh, little excerpt I want to read to you. It, it ties into your question about local churches and smaller churches or uh, whatnot. It's also a um, an assessment of Pretorius and um, I guess his influence. Um, but this is by someone who is uh, basically a, a contemporary of Pretorius's, but lived about 15, 20 years younger than he and lived a little longer. Um, uh, Michael Altenburg, um, musician, composer, um, wrote this, and it's, it's just a wonderful description, um, kind of like I was uh, describing in Hungary, but much earlier. So he wrote, uh, Michael Pretorius, the widely renowned, accomplished, and outstanding musician, highly gifted by God, may God be pleased to preserve him in long life to his glory and as an adornment to his church, was once allegedly asked whether the beloved art of music, having reached such a high level at the present time, would be able to advance even farther. In response, his excellency allegedly gave this Christian answer. Yes, it would improve even more and reach a very high level until finally the joyous last day drew near when it would then be equal to the music of heaven and the angels. The fact that the beloved art of music has indeed reached a very high level is attested not only by a consideration of the outstanding and magnificent music that has been composed, but also by a consideration of the places where music is prevalent. For I do not wish to talk about the music at princely and electoral courts right now, since it is obvious that music at those places is always improving by the day. This is sufficiently attested by the magnificent works of the outstanding and highly gifted musicians, Pretorius, Schutz, and others, so that a person might easily end up questioning whether the beloved art of music can advance any farther at those places too. But just consider how music is completely prevalent in every place, there is hardly even a small village, especially in Thuringia, in which one cannot expect to find both vocal and instrumental music well supplied and flourishing in a splendid and aesthetic manner, place after place. Even when there is no organ, the vocal music is enhanced and adorned with at least five or six violins, which previously could hardly be had in the cities. So you really get this glorious post-millennial view um, at that time, you know, we can look back, sometimes we look back, will music ever be as good as it was in the Renaissance or in Box Day or whatever? And, you know, all of those guys, because of their Christian faith and understanding of biblical teaching would say, yes, it will get better. <laughs> um, sometimes we don't see that. Uh, now might be one of those times we say, really? Um, and we certainly don't see the description. We wouldn't describe um, there's music everywhere. Music is ubiquitous, of course, in our society. The difference between our time and, and the description I just read by Altenberg is when Altenberg talks about it, it's the people in the town making it, making it in the town square, playing it at the coffee shop, 
playing it in church, playing it in their homes, because they didn't have any recorded music. They made the music, and that meant they had to learn to play the instruments skillfully enough to play the kind of music he's talking about and to be able to read it. And that's right. that's where that thrust goes. And um, I, I often say um, when I'm talking to my students or, or other folks, um, you know, I'm glad for the, the growth and progress that happens with my college choir or when I had a church choir um, and that were given to it particularly. But you know, I say, you'll know we've really – We've, we've gotten over a, a big hill um, when we start seeing people getting together and playing music after dinner um, or, you know, not, not just having occasional garage bands for teenagers, but people getting together and playing string quartets or piano trios um, just for fun, not, not for a recital. Recitals are great and <laughs> let's keep having them, but just playing that stuff because it's wonderful and glorious. Uh, music and it's fun to do it together. You know, Kelvin, Kelvin, of course, said it goes without saying the chief recreation of man is making music. And that is just not true anymore. That's not our chief recreation. It would be sports or leisure or movie watching or put plugging in our, our headphones or whatever, but not making music together, just as the common man and as what we do when we get together. When we see that, <laughs> then I say, ah, we've we've really <laughs> pushed ahead. We we've, you know, reclaimed uh we're we're growing where this is indeed a central part of our life, not just Sunday morning or not just the Saturday night concert. 